So let's turn to the scriptures. We're in 1 Thessalonians for this first half term. So we're using our Bible-informed imaginations to put ourselves back into first century Thessalonica. It's a bustling um, port city, so it's cosmopolitan, loads of nationalities, um, loads of, of religions. And into this melting pot came Paul and Silas, Luke and Timothy with the gospel. I'm coming to the reading here, and I'm, I'm coming to the reading next. And they came with this simple message about how to be right with God. And how the love of God and the justice of God have been resolved in the Son of God. So let's read it. We're into, we're into chapter 4. And we're just going to read the first half. We're kind of into a new section, as you can see by Paul's language. So he says this, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. As in fact you are living, now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Some interesting little words there. I encourage you to keep it open um, in front of you. I've changed the, uh, the PowerPoint slides slightly because repeatedly, Paul says, this earliest letter, perhaps this, could, this is the first or second letter that, that Paul writes, he, he repeatedly says, maybe because it's his first letter, he repeatedly says, this is not my words, this is the word of God. These instructions, I didn't just bring them out of my own invention, these, this is the very word of God. And I don't want you to come and think I, I'm kind of preaching at you something this morning that, that I've invented, uh, or is just my, the, the bee in my bonnet, at this moment in time, it is the very word of God. So can I encourage you, um, have that open in front of you. Father God, thank you. You are here and present amongst us this morning um, by your Holy Spirit. And we ask you, we plead with you this morning that your spirit will enliven our hearts to grasp and to see what you're saying through your word, we recognize that we're sinful people, recognize that we're slow to understand, and we need your help. And we want that sense that you've been with us. We want that knowledge that you've, you've spoken to us. Please come 
uh, and work in our hearts as your word is heard so that it becomes to us uh, the sword, the double-edged sword of the spirit that cuts and, and deals with us right at the point we need dealing with this morning, whatever that may be. If it's encouraging encouragement and if it's challenge, bring us conviction. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we've called this series um, Future-Focused Gospel People. Future-Focused Gospel People. That's what we are uh, as Christians. And that was a title for the book. And it's not just the case that Paul specifically talks about the second coming in chapters um, four and five. Um, That'll be next week. Um, I'm looking forward to that. I've been wanting to kind of get, get into that. We haven't talked about that a lot in church uh, for a while, so it's a good time to get into that. But in this book, Paul always has this future in view. He always has the future in view. So in chapter one, we looked um, at this gospel impact um, in Thessalonica, what in Christian jargon we might um, term conversion. So the Holy Spirit came... Uh, uh, and brought deep conviction. Holy Spirit came and worked on the message and powerfully worked in these Thessalonians and brought this deep um, conviction. In fact, notice that's how all ministry works. The message goes, either spoken or is read, and the Holy Spirit uh, works upon it to make it uh, the living word and to make it the double-edged sword. That's how all ministry works. That's what they're doing in Sunday Club this morning. That's what you're doing in your home groups. And they've then kind of got the gospel basics in place. They've got faith. They've got this ability to see that there's more to this world than just the physical realities. They are growing hope, this ability to see that there is a future to this world that is more than just more of the same. And they've got love, the ability to see that there is more to life than one's own interests. But did you notice how chapter one ends? Have a look. Have a look with me now how chapter one ends. It's a chapter of thanksgiving. He, he's kind of, um, he's, he's a, a chapter of thanksgiving. And he says about how these, these other Christians from around the region, they tell us how you turned to God from idols to serve the true and living God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Who rescues us from the coming wrath. He didn't need to say that, did he? If you look at that sentence, it could have just finished with Jesus. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus. He doesn't need to say this. Who rescues us from the coming wrath, but he does. It's in Paul's mind. It's in Paul's mind that all these things that happen, this gospel impact, gospel ministry, gospel growth, there is a a focal point coming. And we talked about it uh, last time. There's this focal point of the the day of judgment. What he calls here the coming wrath. There is this day coming when God will judge. And so even in this... First chapter about Thanksgiving, he he tags on the end, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. He didn't need to say that, but he does. And then last time we looked in chapters two and three about gospel ministry. 
Paul says that he was a steward, a mother, a steward of the gospel, a mother in the gospel, a father in the gospel, a herald of the gospel. And we're all that. We're all stewards, mothers, fathers, and heralds of the gospel in our various contexts. And he ends that section with what? Look at the end of chapter 3. May he, may God, strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes. When our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy one. Do you see what I'm getting at? And now, we're into chapter 4, and it's another section. So first section, gospel impact. Second section, um, gospel ministry. Third section is about gospel growth. How does it end? Look at chapter 5, verse 23. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. The book neatly splits itself into three sections. Um, chapter 1, gospel impact. Jesus You know about Jesus. He saves you from the coming wrath. The second bit um, is about uh, gospel ministry. Gospel ministry is all about strengthening you so you're blameless when Jesus comes. And now he's on to the third bit, which is various aspects of, of sanctification. And his prayer is that God will keep sanctifying you so you are blameless on the day Jesus returns. What are we trying to say? I'm trying to say you can't get away from this. This is inescapable in Paul's thinking. That what matters is what happens to you when Jesus returns. Has the gospel made an impact? Have you received the ministry and gone on to grow in ministry? Have you been sanctified so that you're standing? blameless when Jesus returns. We can't get away from that. It struck me uh, really forcibly this week that we've given the, thankfully we've given the right title to the series. Um, but that we, we can't argue that uh, we, can't put this, we can't put this day, we can't put this day out of our minds. If we're going to be like Paul, we have to kind of pull it out of its obscurity and next week we'll give it some shape uh, and bring it so that it so that it sits there as something we are seeing, something that we have in our mind's eye, and something which is giving our lives hope and shape um, and meaning. I'm sorry that's a long introduction, but I think it was just important to, to nail that down. So we're into this new section where Paul starts to talk about Christian growth. But before we do that, we need to talk about Christian economics. So next slide, thanks, in. So three little pictures. One is how people who, prior to a genuine knowledge of Christ, um, think they're doing in the Christian life. So if the yellow block is um, the life of Christ, a, a life lived um, wholly, uh, as in all the way through the life, but also at every moment uh, through the life, wholly lived uh, it, it, um, in, in reference to God, in love of God, and in love of other people. 
that most people before they become Christians think in these terms. They think, well, if that's Jesus, um, I'm doing, um, I reckon I'm doing about a 7 out of 10. And, and surely, the, surely the qualification point is somewhere in the middle where I'm doing, more, I'm doing more good than I'm doing bad. That's, I think, the, the imagining point of your average British person. They think, well, if that's the life of Christ, if he's done 10 out of 10, I've done, I've done 7 out of 10, um, and that's better than, that's better than 50%, uh, and I'm okay. And it's simply not true. The reality of the non-Christian is this, is this picture in the middle. The qualification is 100%. And you may think that's a bit stark, but I, we were talking about this in Espresso Church a couple of weeks back. Some things have to be pure. In that sense, like how pure do you want your water out of the tap? You know, how much of the uh, stuff that's in the river do you want removed b- before you drink it? Well, you want 100%. There are some things that have to be 100%. So the qualification mark for being right with God is to be like Christ, is to be 100% godly. And in fact, we're not doing 7 out of 10 before we're Christians, before we are God-orientated. Then everything we're doing is, is tainted by self-interest. And it's not ordered towards God. And so, in fact, all we're doing is actually going the other way. We actually have, in a sense, less than zero. But the good news is that this is the Christian life on the right. There is the righteousness of Christ. You get that at the right-hand block. And God, by his grace, through the death of Christ, credits you, this left-hand thing, as if you are as righteous as Christ. Through the gospel, he just looks at you and says, um, I credit you with the righteousness of Jesus. Do you get that? You're right with me by grace through faith. This is a gift I give you. You just take it, and then I, I credit you as being, as being right. And then, sends us his spirit to turn us around, to reorientate us, to point us in the right direction. And then we can genuinely start in the direction of being more and more like Christ. It's important, really, that we, that we get that really fixed clearly in our minds before we start talking about um, gospel growth. So, let's get into it. I had a feeling this was going to be a sleepy morning, so you maybe need to, I know it was cold when we started, but you maybe, maybe need to poke the window, um, add, add a bit if it's getting warm. Please do stay with me. Um, and let's get into chapter 4. Uh, next slide. And what I've done, I want to put these words up because I want you to re- understand this comes straight out of Scripture. So the first thing Paul says to them, he says, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. There's a little, there's a little church plant. Paul has come and he's given them the good news. He's not just given them the gospel. They've got a gospel understanding. He's left them with the basics of how to live a Christian life in a way that that pleases God. But the NIV doesn't really bring out the strength of Paul's words. NIV says, we we instructed you. But actually, which is strange, because they've, they've turned it around. What it actually says is something more like this. You received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. 
um, just as you are doing. They've kind of received, they've received the gospel and they've received a definitive instruction from the, from the apostle. He's, he's given them these. He's given them an instruction pack. Okay, he hasn't managed to give them the, the whole instruction pack all in one go, but he's kind of given them an, an instruction pack. It's a bit like, um, and, and they've got the Old Testament scriptures, so it's a bit like he's, he's given them the, the rule book. It's a bit like in terms of, um, if it was football, he's given you a summary of the FA rules book, whatever that year was, 1863. And he says, these are the things you must do. These are the things you ought to do um, to please God. These are your definitive instructions. He's also brought to them along the way, if you want to read back, he's brought to them the decisions made by the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. So did that happen when you became a Christian? Did you get a basic packet of instructions? I was really fortunate. I was trained, well-trained in discipleship. I'm not sure how much I took it on board and obeyed it, let make it clear, but I was given good training. Um, in the basics. Did that happen to you or, or are you still floundering because you haven't got the basics, uh, the basic package in, in the Christian life? And that's true, just go and tell me and we'll sort something out. But notice what the aim is of being more and more godly. The aim is to please God. God is not like some distant, passive, I don't know, headmaster who, who lives up in his ivory tower and, and never comes down and, and mixes with his students. God is personally and actively present with you. And the aim of, of growth is just to, to please him more. So the first thing we need in gospel growth is we need God's definitive instruction, and we have it. We have it here in the scriptures. And we have Paul's letter to the Thessalonians and the other letters that he wrote. Because he was an apostle, recorded, it's there for us. The second thing we need for, for gospel growth is we need, we need constant um, reminders. We need it explained to us um, time and again. We need regular explanation. So here's the question. Okay, Paul says, we instructed you. Um, you you've got the instructions. He says to them, you are putting them into practice. So we could say that to you. I could say that to you. You've got the Bible. You're putting it into practice. Why on earth then does Paul write to them and say, we, we urge you and ask you to do this more and more? In other words, why are you here this morning? There's a worship aspect, isn't there? That it's right to come and worship God. But you've got the Bible. You are doing it. Why do you need to come? Well, the same for them as it is for us. We need reminding. We just need regular reminding. We need it explained to us. It's like riding a bike. If you stand still, you just fall off. We need reminding. We need explaining. There is always, there is always more to do. If we go back to that economic slide, don't do it now, but if we went back to it, there is always more Christ-likeness to be gained. I've lost where I am in my notes. So it might be that you know you've got one aspect of the Christian life, you feel like you've got it nailed down, but there are other things to do. 
opening your life to others, being more involved in the community, generosity. So growth needs the word, but it needs it. You need it reminding to you, and you need it explained. And Paul is going to explain um, to the Thessalonians, he's going to talk about um, sexual immorality, because that's uh, specific to them as a new church. He's going to talk about um, work, um, and he's going to talk about the future. And the first thing he deals with, actually, this time around, is, is sex. Um, can't get away from it. Paul says, avoid sexual immorality. You'll be glad to know I'm not going to go into this in detail. Um, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that's holy and honourable, not in passionate lusts like the pagans who don't know God. So let's just use our imagination for a moment. A new church has been planted. Women and, and men are meeting as equals for the first time in their lives. Some of these women and men are, are worshipping together. They're from a Jewish background. This will be the first time they worship together. Women and men are going to be meeting in this new church with an equality across the classes, across the social classes. So maybe there are young, single, slave women and men. And Paul says, don't take advantage of one another. There's, within this new church, within this new arrangement of humanity, there's a new opportunity for inappropriate relationships, for pressure to be applied. Paul says, don't use the church uh, as a sexual opportunity. It can happen. We see it, in, and sadly, in high-profile leaders across the world. They're the ones that get the attention. But don't use the church as an opportunity for inappropriate sexual activity. That's what Paul says. Specifically, he says this should not be porneia. That's a Greek word for sexual immorality. See, in English, sexual immorality is really vague. It's a, it's a vague term which you, is open to interpretation. In Greek, it's a specific word, porneia. It has one meaning, which is sex outside of marriage, full stop. In Greek life, they were pretty permissive. There was only, only marriage was protected by law. So the wife, the wife had, the, had a raw deal because she was expected to be faithful regardless, but the husband really could have sex with his slaves, with prostitutes, all kind of people. It was generally acceptable as long as he didn't do it to excess and as long as he didn't do it with another man's wife. Those are the only things really that were seen as you know, beyond the pale. And the New Testament is different. And one writer says the New Testament is characterized by an unconditional repudiation of all extramarital and unnatural intercourse. So this is this one word. I, I'm not going to say any more about it than, than that today. But this one word, porneia, means sex outside of marriage. It's not as vague uh, as, as it is in the English. So the Thessalonians are going to have to learn control, he says. You see what the pagans do? Passionate lust. So passionate lust or lustful passion, it doesn't matter. What they're doing is they, they're getting the feeling and they think, yeah, let me find a way to go and do that. Um, and that's how it works for the pagans. And Paul says that's not how it works for Christians. He says Christians have to learn control. Learn control. Learn to control your body. 
It's as simple as that, really. And again, I'm not going to go in, in any more detail, except that self-control is one of the fruit of the Spirit. It's one of those things that the Holy Spirit is growing in you uh, from the inside out. So one of your di- diagnostics of whether a behavior is sinful or not is simply, can I control it? Am I addicted to chocolate? Can I control it? No, actually, at the moment. So it's an issue. There are worse things to be involved with, but there you go. And Paul says, uh, what, what cannot be done by faith is sin. So it's just one of those, it's just one of those diagnostics um, for your own behavior. Is it okay to have a beer or two? Yes, but could you not do? Could you not if you chose? If no, then no, it's not all right. If yes, then it is all right. There are some great proverbs. Better a patient person than a warrior. One with self-control than one who takes a city. It's a great... Did you hear that? Better a patient person than a warrior. One with self-control than one who takes a city. We we kind of like... We revere the... um, I started watching a really bad um, Dwayne Johnson film. Uh, I won't tell you which one it was the other night. I've kind of like... um, but I was really intrigued to see how we got involved in this film in the first place, and I watched about 10 minutes. I thought, no, I'm not going any further. But we kind of like, we revere, uh, we re- we revere the hero and the warrior, but the hero, uh, the hero in the Christian life is one of our self-control. Like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. So that's Paul's first little... little um, specifics, his little bit of preaching. So they've got the Bible, they've got his instruction, but he's reminding and he's explaining. So the third thing they need for, for gospel growth is, is the Lord's discipline. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins. NIV says, it's much stronger again, NIV's not done a great job this time around. Much stronger than that. The Lord is an avenger. The Lord is an avenger in all these things. Perhaps Paul's thinking specifically about this situation in churches where some of those powerful people are seeing it as a sexual opportunity uh, and putting pressure on vulnerable um, singles in the church, maybe then vulnerable married people in the church. But Paul's point is they're not alone. They're not without a defender. They, the Lord will act as, as, as their avenger. And this has been part of a change of mind, I think, for me in the last couple of years. Previously, if you'd come to me and said, maybe the Lord is, is punishing me for something. And I would have said, no, the Lord doesn't punish the Christian because he's punished Christ for whatever potential sin you might have committed. And of course that's true. Go back to that picture um, that we showed at the beginning. That's true. All your sins have been paid for by Christ so that you are right with God regardless. But that doesn't stop the Lord choosing to intervene in your life. I would have said previously... No, the Lord is not punishing you, but he might be disciplining you. But in light of verses like this and various other verses, I think I have to change my mind. 
because the language here is, is clearly a language, a language of punishment. The Lord is actively concerned about your walk with him. The Lord is actively involved in your life. It is not beyond him to bring you trouble. Not beyond bringing you trouble when you do things which are wrong. You do have to ask, is the Lord punishing me? Specific, and it may be specific. Is it to do with something? Is it to do with how I am treating my brothers and sisters in Christ? It's interesting, isn't it? I, I, I think this is specific. The Lord will avenge those who, who, who you are abusing the, in, in the body of Christ sexually. But there's a similar... Similar section in 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul talks about um, the Corinthians coming to, coming to communion. And, and they, were, they were drinking, some were drinking first and, and not waiting for the others, and some were, uh, had started so early they were drunk by the time the others uh, arrived. And Paul said to them, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. Those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink, eat and drink judgment on themselves. This is why many among you are weak and ill and a number have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. There we are. That's how it resolves, isn't it? It is judgment. It may be punishment. But it's punishment that comes as a discipline so that you won't be lost at the end. There we are. We come back to that focus on what happens at the end. But again, it's a, it's a sin. People have been sinning against their brothers and sisters in Christ, have been sinning against the church. And God has brought illness into the lives he's brought trouble are you in trouble if it's financial trouble come and talk to us but are you in trouble well where do you go how am I treating my brothers and sisters in Christ is the Lord putting his finger on something always remembering that he's, he's not doing it out of vindictiveness He's not doing it out of some arbitrary standard. He's doing it because he wants us to know him well, to love him well, to know his love, and to enjoy him um, for all eternity. So the third thing they have for gospel growth. So they have the definitive word, as we have the Bible. They have it regularly explained. They have Paul's exhortation, as we have preaching and home groups and all kinds of other things. They have the Lord's sovereign discipline. And fourthly and finally, they have the work of the Holy Spirit. Really interesting at the end, um, Paul says, uh, about your love for one another, we don't need to write to you. You've been taught by God. You've been taught by God. So the fourth way, fourth thing we have in our gospel growth is this inner work of the Holy Spirit. So Paul, uh, God's been at work in, in the Thessalonians. 
He's laid it on their hearts to, to love one another. It's flowed naturally out of a changed heart. It's part of the Lord's covenant promise with us as new covenant people. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. It's one of those lovely things you see around churches, one of the joys of pastoral work where you see people change independently because the Lord has laid something on their heart and they've heard it and they've done it. Or maybe they've just changed without even realizing the Lord has laid something on their heart um, and they've changed. Um, it's one of the joys of pastoral work because the Lord is at work sovereignly. So those are the four things they have for growth. They have the word, as we have the Bible. They have reminders and exhortations, as we have preaching. They have the Lord's sovereign discipline and they have the work of the Holy Spirit. And that leads Paul to one uh, one final exhortation for today. He says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as, just as we told you. It's difficult for us to get our heads around um, first century Greco-Roman society. But it revolved around patrons and clients. So patrons were the, were the, were the powerful people and the clients were the hangers-on. So the patrons were the powerful people they would act as a sponsor. They would act as a benefactor. So if you hung around with a, with a patron, he could help you get legal representation. He could help you get a loan, help you get a good marriage. He could help you arrange your business deals. And then if you wanted a time to go into the, to the priesthood or the um, political office, he could help you along the way. And, and, and in return for that, essentially, you just hung around with him and made him look good. Um, it would mean accompanying him when he went into Rome. If, if the patron wanted to go you know, up, up to central government, and if you could bring a crowd with him, that, that makes him look good. All you need to do is, is go with him. You were supposed to support him when he went to war. You were supposed to ransom him if he was captured. And you were supposed to support him during a political campaign. So some church members, it sounds like what Paul's saying, some church members were, were in this kind of client status of powerful men. They didn't work as such, they just hung around powerful men to make them look good. And, and Paul's command to them is, is then quite shocking. Give it up. Give it up. Do manual work instead. In that society, that was a, that was a shocking thing to say. Manual labour was despised, despite the fact that Jesus was a carpenter and Paul was a tent maker. So for us, it's not a blanket ban to involvement in politics. But this wasn't conviction politics. This was a kind of sponging, a kind of, a kind of vote for hire. Um, getting involved in politics for its own sake. Um, trying to sway a crowd when swaying a crowd was necessary. And Paul says, mind your own business. Paul does not have much interesting Christians get involved in politics. And you do find it, not often, but you find it in churches, you find, you find young men who find it hard to tie down a job. Um, uh, and, and they waft around and they, they take a bit of work here and, there and they take a bit of work there. And I think Paul would simply say to them, you really need to tie down a job, even if it's just working with your hands, even if it's stacking shelves at Tesco's. You need to settle down and find something. So to try and sum up, Paul says this, let's have more and more 
God-pleasing, please. More and more God-pleasing, please. So use the Bible. You've got it. Um, come to preaching and to home group. You've got it. It's on, it's on offer from our side, from the Lord's side. He will, he will discipline you. Make life hard if he thinks you're going off the rails and he will change you from the inside out by the work of his Holy Spirit. But this is not a dry technical exercise. And there's a danger that we make Christianity so dry and legal that we've kind of lost sight of what it means. And I wondered this week, now that uh, in our house shenanigans, we're getting close to exchanging uh, contracts, have we made Christianity about as exciting as conveyancing? I'm righteous in Christ. Trawling through legalese takes a week for you to realise, oh, there was a mistake. Nathan and Tory were supposed to sign this. Document goes to them. Takes a week for them to get back to the solicitors. Another week has gone. And you're just dragging it on. And then you realise they and us are anticipating living in a better, albeit slightly, in a new and better house. And then suddenly conveyancing has a point. Conveyancing has a point. You're anticipating living in a, a new and better house in a, as, as, as Christians. We're anticipating living in a new and better house. So yeah, we have to at times get involved in working through what a passage means. Yeah, at times we have to do, the, do the, the hard weeks where you just think only one minor thing has changed in the last six months. Yeah, Christianity is unashamedly future-focused. So keep the new house constantly in view. But even then, it's not simply about grinding day by day out. It's about pleasure. Strangely, it's about bringing the Lord pleasure. And it's about finding our pleasure in him. Can we do that? More and more God-pleasing, please. That's what Paul says. And that's what he'd say to us. More and more God-pleasing, please. Can you please God more? Can you find your pleasure in him more? Let's pray and then we'll sing. Father God, uh, we thank you that you've given us the same equipment that you gave to the Thessalonian church when you planted them when they were new. When they were new and excited, they had the definitive word, they had the word explained, they had your discipline, they had your Holy Spirit. We have the same. Forgive us as if we've made it as boring as conveyancing. We ask you, we invite you, to discipline us where we need disciplining us. But we ask you, please, please point it, point it out to us. Please make it clear. Please speak to our hearts as well as change our circumstances that we would see, hey, this is where I'm not treating the body of Christ. I'm sinning against the body of Christ, the church. 
please make that really clear to us, if that's the case, so that we can change, we can move on. Thank you for that promise that forgiveness is always there. Thank you for that promise that all our sin is ultimately covered in the death of Christ. And we ask for more of that work of the Holy Spirit. Give us self-control. Be in our obedience. Give us joy. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.